Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm invisible and a razor of love. I don't know how to follow. You're an invisible eraser? Of love. I mean, if you know, like, there's many questions raised by that. <laughs> Why don't you call me? I feel like flying into. Flying into what? Like, that sounds like a threat. Are you, uh, MI6 about to break down the doors of your house in a minute? Flying into everything, 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 ever. Anyway. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? Hello. <laughs> are you well? Yes, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Looking forward to today's clashes. Indubitably, yes. Um, this this was quite the thing. It was a very good choice. Well, just to remind people what we are doing for the second clash in our Electronica season. Uh, so this week, Tim will be leading us through uh, the Chemical Brothers' uh, second album, Dig Your Own Hole. And next week, I will be leading us through Fatboy Slim's second album, You've Come a Long Way Baby. There you go. Excellent. Uh, so as you said last week, it is very much back to our safe space of yeah. the 90s. I suppose that the reason for this clash really is essentially the history of Electronica is, well, obviously we did in our previous week two of the classic sort of albums that broke it open into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. The reason I chose these two is because these got indie boys to dance. <laughs> Exactly. Definitely a song on this album. And then the ubiquity of ones on both albums. Indie boys were were finally ready to put on their dancing shoes. Quite right. Now, there are a couple of more direct connections between them. Uh, They used to DJ many of the same club nights in the early to mid-90s. So they met at the legendary Heavenly Sunday Social club night in London in 1994, which I'll be talking about in a little bit. And uh, in 1999, they actually played a gig together at the uh, Red Rocks Natural Amphitheatre in Denver, Colorado. That was quite good. Yes, one to be at. Yeah, definitely. But before that, though, should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? I think we should. All right, have you got any shite to talk about? No shite. Okay, I have some shite. It's possibly the most irritatingly catchy song ever written. It's it's a small world by the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> so it was written by the their songwriting duo, the, the Sherman Brothers, who wrote a, any of the famous songs from any Disney film from the, the 30s through to the 60s. The Sherman Brothers wrote them. I'm not going to explain why that's stuck in my head until next week. Uh, but it's very much stuck in my head, and it's incredibly irritating. A beer for me, a beer for you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that is very early with our obligatory Simpsons reference. Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a small world in my head, but you have to wait till next week to find out why. I know exactly the reason <laughs> yeah. why, uh, because of course I noted that down. But yes, we will yeah. get on to that next week. Yeah, okay. What about your tip of the hat? What do you want to give a shout to? So, um, an artist that I've admired for uh, a few years, really, she uh, Whittles, She Drew the Gun, released uh, Behave Myself, the album, last year, and the title track from it, 
behave myself is an absolute belter. It's got a great base. It, it's angrily political and it's funky, righteous anger. Oh, great. It's just all good. Um, and she is definitely someone that um, I know both of us have uh, waxed lyrical about. Yeah, she's great. I haven't heard the new album, but I really do like the first two. I think they were both really good. So, and as you said, you know, angrily political uh, with, with funk to it. So if it's in that vein, then I'll be all over it. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, uh, I've also got something to talk about, which is which is relatively new, and it's from a, a band that we have privately spoken about before. Uh, it is the new single by the band Bodega. It's called Doers. It's the first single from their second album, which is called Broken Equipment, and that's due to be released on the 11th of March. It's another one that I'm really excited to hear. I really, really like their first album. I mean, you love a garage band. Indeed. You love the Pixies. Mm-hmm. You love the Flaming Lips. So if you haven't heard it, Kev, it's great. Well, all those things are yeah. really good. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I haven't heard it yet. I will be excited to listen to it when it is added to the playlist. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So yeah, we will add those to our playlists on Spotify and on YouTube Music. Check them out because they are dead good. Yeah, like um, I was over the Christmas period driving to some places and had the had the playlist on, and it's a good listen. If we, if I do say so myself, it is a good listen. There's a, well, if you've been listening since the start, you know there's there's quite an eclectic mix of things that we've called out, and it's all on there. So yeah, ch- check them out as we usually do. We'll also tweet the links to to those tracks as well that you can check out. Indeed. Okay. Top Trumps time. Okay, let's get into it. Um, it was a draw last time, so and I am struggling, or have been, certainly. I think it's going to be close this week. I think it might be as well. Mm, okay, let's just rattle through these then. I'm going to go sales first. Okay. Dig Your Own Holes sold over 2 million copies. Circa maybe a little bit more, 5 million. Oh, fuck. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is not close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So you take the first one. Uh, so your pick for the next one. Um, so I'm going to go with certifications because I'm fairly uh, confident on this one. Yeah, go on. So four times platinum in the UK. Yeah, one times platinum in the UK. And when platinum in the US? Gold in the US, so I'm 2-0 down. Shit. Okay, um, I'm going to go charts. All right. Number one in the UK. Ditto. Number 34 in the US. Number 14 in the US. Ooh. Yeah. That, which, considering what we've just talked about certifications, is a surprise, but I guess... Yeah. I guess that You've Come a Long Way Baby had more enduring success then. But yeah, and um, possibly also longevity in the yeah. in the US through singles as well. Yeah, good point. All right, I'm going to go for the all-time top rankings. Okay, in the year 2000, Q voted Dig Your Own Hole at number 41 on their list of the best British albums of all time. Wow, you've kicked my ass. 81. Oh, fucking hell. Okay, wow. Uh, it was also number 72 on the best albums of the 90s uh, from Rolling Stone in 2015. No placement. Okay, and in the uh, NME's list of the top 500 best albums of all time in 2013, Dig Your Own Hole came in at number 414. No placement. Wow. I'm amazed that there's no placement for You've Come a Long Way Baby on those on those latter lists. And I'm amazed that it's that low down on the on the queue list. Possibly it's it's been mobied 
Yeah, good shout. If you don't understand what I mean by that, is that obviously many of the singles off this album have been utilised ad nauseum, yeah. particularly for like goal celebration music or something, or certainly sports montages. Definitely. So possibly that because of how ubiquitous some of these songs are or have been, critics being the sniffy bunch of pricks that they are, are like, well, we're not including that album on, on our list. Yeah, no, that's very fair. You may well be right there. But anyway, I'm glad they haven't because that means I've won that one and we're back to 2-2. Two, two. I'm going to leave scores to the end because I think that's going to be really tight. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going awards here. Dig Your Own Hole received four Brit Award nominations, but did not win any. Okay, You've Come a Long Way Baby had four Brit nominations and won one for Best Dance Act. Okay, so you're ahead there. It received two Grammy nominations and won one uh, for the Best Rock Instrumental Performance for Block Rocking Beats. Two Grammy nominations, zero wins. All right, the only other thing I've got is... Dig Your Own Hole was nominated for the Mercury Prize in 1998, but it didn't win it. So, You've Come a Long Way Baby won three MTV VMA awards, all for Praise You. No surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Won the Best Electronic Act at the MTV European Music Awards in 98. And won one NME award in '99. Okay, so you've kicked my ass there, then shit. Okay, well that means you're three two up, and it all goes down to scores. I cannot win, but it all goes down to the critic scores. So go on, what have you got? All music, five out of five. Ditto. NME, eight out of ten. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> Tension. <laughs> yeah. Rolling Stone. Three out of five. Oh, four out of five. <laughs> Thing is, and we'll be talking about this next week, I know who wrote the Rolling Stone review. <laughs> As do I, the fucking prick. <laughs> Go on. Q, four out of five. Ditto. So it's all down to Pitchfork then. Pitchfork with its weird scoring system. 8.2 out of 10. <laughs> Fucking hell, 8.4 out of 10. So it's another draw then. Bastards, I thought I had it that time. Nobby's absolutely diddled you there. Fucking prick. (laughs) Okay, so that's a draw. Good stuff, so I'm still winning. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, shall I start taking us through the Chemical Brothers Dig Your Own Hole? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Dig Your Own Hole was their second studio album. It was released on the 7th of April 1997 on Virgin Records and the band's own imprint Freestyle Dust uh, in the UK. And in the US, that was released on the Capitol Records subsidiary Astral Works. The album was recorded at Orinoco Studios in South London and produced by the Chemical Brothers themselves. And years gaff. <laughs> Who knew she was such a big fan of the Wombles? Uh, can I talk about the Chemical Brothers, please? No, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my job, which is leading us down ever, um, de- ever more um, obscure and stupid paths. See, I thought you were going to talk ed- ever decreasing circles, then, and we're going to have a nice big old '80s sitcom chat. I mean, I was tempted, but like, we're, we're not getting into into that. What well, about joint account? <laughs> don't remember it. <laughs> uh, the British Empire was shit, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was terrible. 
<laughs> I mean, not as bad as the Chris Barry vehicle where he was a professional footballer. Oh, God. That, yeah, that And he had an bad. awful Scouse accent. Dreadful. Back to the British Empire, though. The, in the, do you remember the very last episode of the British Empire? No. It was literally, and then he woke up and it was all a dream. <laughs> No, honestly, that was it. He, it was, he, he woke up and he was like on a train going to a job interview to be a leisure centre manager. And everyone that had been in the show were other passengers on the train. It was, that was literally it. British Empire inspired Inception. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I want someone, one, one of our listeners who's far more talented than we are, please do a mashup of the opening credits from the British Empire with the Hans Zimmer score from Inception playing. <laughs> also, if you do get a chance to check out the last ever episode of Biker Grove, then it is fucking wild. I have never seen the last episode of Biker Grove. <laughs> so it's fucking wild. And I thank you, Google. <laughs> So in the finale, everyone in the Grove realises that they were actually just made-up characters in a TV show and that whole world is controlled by the writers who plan to demolish the Grove. It gets better. They are all then given a piece of paper to write their own ending, but they soon realise that the Grove is disappearing into a void and someone must buy it in order to save it. Eventually, after they're all attacked by a full-size T-Rex... <laughs> A character called Stumpy finds some buried treasure and uses it to buy the grove, essentially saving it and everyone within it. But just as it seems like the day has been saved, he discovered the whole place had been rigged with dynamite and the grove blows up, presumably killing everyone. What the fuck? This is a children's television programme about navigating the difficulties of early teenage life. Wow. <laughs> I need to see that now. <laughs> maybe maybe as like a future um, bonus pod, we could do a watch along. Oh my God, yeah. That is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh God. I mean, how are you going to drag us back to the Chemical Brothers? God only knows. Uh, I might not bother. <laughs> What's your best song? What's your worst song? <laughs> I groove. Where do I go from that? I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to go from that. I'm going to go, as I always do, back to the beginning of the Chemical Brothers. So, <clears throat> Tom Rowlands and Ed Simons. They met in 1989 when they were both studying at the University of Manchester. They used to attend the famous Hacienda nightclub, which we've spoken about a couple of times um, on previous clashes. Tom Rowlands in an interview with the I newspaper in 2019. So if you don't know, Tom Rowlands is the tall one. So he said, you'd see four or five other people from our year in the Hacienda. We'd get there at six o'clock on a Friday to queue up to get in, and the whole world opened up to you. If you showed an interest and you came back again and again, the warmth in people and that community based around this music was amazing. So in terms of what inspired the two to make music... Uh, again, Tom Rowlands in that same interview said, In London, it felt like to be in the record industry, you needed some kind of special past. You can only get into that if you're driving a Porsche down the King's Road or something. Whereas in Manchester, you'd meet people who were making their own records and putting on club nights. There was an exciting feeling that you could just do things. There wasn't any barrier, and that was a real inspiration for us. Well, fortunately, the access to the arts for um, people from normal backgrounds has, has opened up, you know. <laughs> Well, and let's be clear, the Chemical Brothers aren't exactly from normal backgrounds. No. 
<laughs> as one of them, I forget which one, one of them is from Henley on Thames. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. But anyway, in 1992, they formed what was then called the Dust Brothers. Uh, and their first collaboration, uh, they remixed a song by Tom Rowland's then band, Ariel. The Dust Brothers, they'd named themselves after the American production duo who'd done a lot of work with the Beastie Boys. So they began DJing at Manchester on a club night called Naked Under Leather. Quite a sexy title. <laughs> Is that like one of those SM clubs in The Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they, they were playing breakbeat and instrumental hip-hop tracks. And when they sort of started to run out of them and their sets were coming a little bit predictable and, and repetitive, they basically said, oh, just fuck it and make our own music, shall we? <laughs> In 92, they released their debut single, which was under the name The Dust Brothers, Song to the Siren. That was eventually included on the Chemicals debut album, Exit Planet Dust. They managed to get some traction for that by sending a copy to someone else we've spoken about before, London DJ Andrew Weatherall. He began including it in his DJ sets. So they went back to London in 1993 and continued DJing, including a residency as uh, at the club, as I've already said, the Heavenly Sunday Social that's where they first met the likes of Tim Burgess and Noel Gallagher, whom we'll be talking about a little bit later on. So in an interview with Spin in 1997, they described those club nights at the Sunday Social as a quiet, reflective place for friends who wanted to go out on a Sunday and hear music. Over the next couple of years, they basically made a name for themselves by remixing other people's songs you know, and some fairly high-profile people within the British music industry had tracks remixed by the Chemicals, or sorry, the Dust Brothers, as they were still called, including the Manic Street Preachers, the Charlatans, Primal Scream, the Prodigy, and Left Field. And they were still releasing some of their own EPs at the same time as well. And the Chemicals remix of Everything Must Go is one of the best remixes I think has ever, ever been done. Yep. I, I, I agreed entirely, as is their remix of Voodoo People by The Prodigy. Oh, yeah, it's filth. It is filth. So 1995 was the year where they really broke out. In March of that year, they went on their first US tour. Now, that tour, they played alongside Orbital and Underworld. I mean, fuck. How amazing must those gigs have been? Yeah, it might have gone off a wee touch. So that brought them to, to the attention of the actual Dust Brothers, who weren't especially pleased with, you know, their name having been, let's say, appropriated <laughs> <laughs> by these two lads from England. So they then changed their name to the Chemical Brothers after their recent single, Chemical Beats, which also winds its way onto Exit Planet Dust. Their first release and their fourth single overall under the new name of the Chemical Brothers was Leave Home. That reached number 17 in the UK, so a big hit. The reason I wanted to just mention that, because in a nod to our previous clash, that begins with a sample of the vocoded voice from Kraftwerk's Ohm Sweet Ohm from the Radioactivity album. Nice. Okay, so yeah, Exit Planet Dust, which is obviously a nod to their original name. That was released in July of 95. It entered the charts in the UK at number 9. In September, they released the single Life is Sweet. That had guest vocals provided by Tim Burgess. It's an absolute 
banger. It was named by Select Magazine as their single of the month and it reached number 25 in the UK. So, off the back of that album success, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the link between dance music and indie music with having Tim Burgess singing on, on one of the mm-hmm. tracks, it again, just started to cement their reputation. It's still, still a bit underground, if you like, but, you know, they, they certainly had a following. That This is around the time I became aware of them anyway. Uh, at Glastonbury in 1995, Noel Gallagher approached them about collaborating on a song. Obviously, we will come on to that again later on. They also supported Oasis on the Arena Tour to promote What's the Story Morning Glory. And comparing playing arena shows to their sort of small gigs that they'd been used to playing, again, Tom Rowlands with the Eye newspaper, he said... We arrived in our little van with keyboards wrapped in blankets, just three of us, and then we turned back up with this big sort of rolling show that we put together in the intervening 20-odd years. So that's, they returned to Manchester Arena uh, in 2019, a gig that we went to, Kevin. Indeed. Then we turned back up with this big sort of rolling show we put together in the intervening 20-odd years. It was a surreal moment to go back and remember that. It was just a whole new world. We hadn't encountered things like dressing rooms or catering before. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in late 95, they started work on the album that would become Dig Your Own Hole, and they continued having live commitments throughout that period, including in 1996, August of 1996, they opened the show at Nebworth. Indeed, yeah, and that's that's a cracking booking to get people going for for that gig. Exactly, although... Imagine fucking the chemicals playing at two in the afternoon anywhere now. <laughs> I mean, you're in for a long night. <laughs> Do you think anyone peaked that early? <laughs> Based on um, some of the sides we've seen at gigs, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> and then crashed very, very hard. Well, I was going to say... Do you think it's basically like Tuesday night at Glastonbury, oh. where everyone goes too hard? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That is about all I have on background for Dig Your Own Hole, unless there's something else that you've got. No, I've got nothing else. All right. So, Kev, how did you discover Dig Your Own Hole? So, for me, I, d- I discovered it really through the singles. Um, setting sun. It has an old Gallagher on it. Like we've talked before, the we're both teenagers at this point. We're in the middle of the Brit pop mm-hmm. battles, and mm-hmm. Noel Gallagher's collaborated with a dance actor. Oh, that's interesting. And when you heard it, it was like, fuck, that's interesting. But what I will say is that I also have you to thank for this album. That whilst I had listened to the singles and kind of liked them, I was still very much with me head in me indie game. And it's only yeah. when I sort of met you and lent the album off you and listened to the whole collection, then it became something that I very much enjoyed. Yeah, so I I bought this the week of release. So as I mentioned a minute ago, I had become aware of the chemicals when Exit Planet Dust came out. And again, it was my brother. He was at uni at this time and... I was already a Charlatans fan, so with my brother coming home and saying, listen to this, you know, would have got a song with Tim Burgess doing vocals, sound, I'm all over that. That's when I got into the Chemical Brothers. Mm-hmm. So by the time of Setting Sun, I was already sold. But yeah, like you said, if anything was going to cement my commitment to the Chemical Brothers in stone, 
it was going to be a collaboration with Noel Gallagher. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Should we do some artwork talk? Yeah, let's do some artwork talk. All right. It's a pretty simple cover. It was designed by Negative Space. Uh, it's basically a high contrast monochrome picture of a young woman in, in profile. Um, Lovely font. Whoa, that's the thing I really want to talk about. It is the, it, no, genuine, it is their logo. It is the font because, so they still use that logo mm-hmm. today. It's it's iconic. It really fits the psychedelic style image. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. And to be honest, like, whilst it's a very simple album cover, it's very effective because of the lack of color on it, w- works really well. Yeah, I don't. I agree. Yeah, it is very stark and very minimalist. So I am one for occasionally taking the font chat to the next level. I'm going to do the same again. Oh, the logo is based on the show Roman typeface. So here's an interview with Negative Spaces Anthony Sweeney, who designed the logo. So Anthony Sweeney graduated from St Martin's College. I wonder if he studied sculpture. Hey. <laughs> right. So. He said, looking back, the logo seemed to really fit with the Kemakabara's philosophy. It was a bit cut and paste, slightly overlapping. The characters all mashed together in a really quick way, but it also had this otherworldly quality to it. I still can't tell if it's genius or if it's just a bit bad. It's funny how these things take on a life of their own, and it's really interesting to see what other designers have done with it since. So yeah, simple really. Here's a nice font. Let's fuck around with it a bit. Well, yeah, it like it has a kind of, as you say, a, a slightly psychedelic feel to it, a slightly alien feel to it, which which works really well with some of the imagery of their songs and and all that yeah. kind. You know, it it's all good. It is, uh, but that's all I've got to say about the artwork. Yeah, I've got nothing else. All right, so let's get right into it then. Back with another one of those block rocking beats. Belter. What an opening to an album. So my first note is. The word bombastic doesn't do it justice. <laughs> I mean, what we and something we're gonna, I'm sure, talk about on both albums is that you can tell that these are DJs who have performed live because yes, they are masters of building anticipation, building tension um, mm-hmm. within a song. Like the way it starts and it gradually builds in and then absolutely smacks you in the face. It's fucking great. Quite right. So, yeah, you've got those sort of weird opening sci-fi style chords. Mm -hmm. And as it's like you said, they give way to that bass line. And then, yeah, the fucking, the drums are massive. And yeah, smacks you in the face is, it's a really good way to describe it. It's a couple of things I want to say. So at five minutes plus, it would be quite easy to get bored of this. But like you said, the way they change it up mm-hmm. and bring it down, it keeps you engaged throughout. There's never a dull moment in it. No, it, like that's the thing, is that many songs where they are repetitive, that once you're getting into the five-minute territory, then it can become like, all right, I'll get what you've done here. Um, can we now move on? But because they, because they understand the live performance, they know how to bring you down and then bring you back up and you're still with them. Yeah, exactly that. So so they've, they've got this bit just towards the end where it completely breaks down and the sort of the bass line, they, they take out a, a lot of the, the notes and it just becomes a, lot, a, you know, a bit more simplistic and, and funky. Uh, and then uh, alongside that, one of them is doing a little squeaky fart over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, that's exactly what you were just saying about changing it up building it, breaking it down, doing 
and this is a common theme I'm going to come back to this week a lot and next week especially an awful lot doing things with these disparate elements that create something much greater than the sum of its parts if do you know what I mean yeah definitely so there's um someone that we've lauded for his uh, great writing Stephen Thomas Erlewine described this song as where hip-hop meets hard techno He's, he's nailed it again. He has nailed Well, we're coming back to him a bit later on, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> so, before I come on to my samples and stuff, because there's, a, uh, yeah, another common theme this week and next week, I've got a lot of samples chat. I also have um, have noted many samples. Just the last one beforehand, though, the term block rocking beats entered the lexicon because of this tune, which tells you everything you need to know about its impact. Yeah, it was huge and it was everywhere. But the thing is, and again, I'm sure we will talk about this in the next two two weeks, is that despite the fact that you know you might hear it on the waltzes, you might hear it on the on the radio, you might hear you know you'd hear it all over the place down the arcade, down the bowling alley. Exactly, you'd hear it everywhere. But even now, this many years removed from it, it is such an exciting song. So that. As you know, it is still a staple of their live shows. And whenever that bass line comes in, it goes off. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant tune. Okay. So the facts, before we move on, it was the second single released from the album on the 24th of March, 1997. It entered the charts in the UK at number one, and it reached number 40 on the Billboard Alternative chart. So let's go samples then. The main vocal sample is uh, the track Gucci Again by Schooly D. The bass, although it's much cut up and, and, and repeated and manipulated a bit, but the bass sound comes from The Well's Gone Dry by The Crusaders. The main drum part is a track called Changes by Bernard Purdy. There is another drum part sampled from a track called Got Myself a Good Man by Pucho and the Latin Soul Brothers. Great name for a band. Yes. Uh, and then there's a, another vocal sample where it says we're about ready to rock steady. That is from the Zulu Beats radio show from the 6th of August 1983 by Africa Islam. Wow. <laughs> it has been sampled itself 18 times, including just one I want to mention because it's a bit of a link to next week by Fatboy Slim on the song Your Mama. Well, there you go. Didn't know that. Mm. It's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, I've got, I've got nothing. I've already waxed lyrical about it. Okay. We then move on to the title track, Dig Your Own Hole. This has five samples. I won't read them all. There is a drum sample from the track Hit or Miss by Odetta. And there is an electronic sound, uh, which is sampled from George Harrison's No Time or Space from his 1969 Electronic Sounds album. Again, didn't know that. Hmm. Okay, we've just talked about that Block Rock and Beat is bombastic. It's a huge opening to the album. And then they pick the pace up even further. Yeah, it, it just keeps you up. And it absolutely, like the start of this album, it's basically shouting at you, get up and dance. Yes, the drum beat is insistent. You, you cannot resist moving to it. Mm-hmm. There's like a huge pulsating bass line, which is just one note over and over again. But it just drives everything forward at the speed of sound. Do you know what I mean? You just it's yeah. it's frenzied, it's frenetic. You've got, as I mentioned, with that 
George Harrison sample, you've got what has become the trademark electronic whooshes and whirlings and warblings that mm-hmm. you expect from the chemicals now. And then you've got an amazingly funky, distorted slap bass riff. Yeah, <laughs> marking-tastic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, 1997, there was nothing else like this. No. We talked about Daft Punk before, okay, and Homework. That came out in 97. And that, in its own way, was very unique. And, and as, well, as we've said, is one of my favourite albums from this era. But even that, it's just nothing like this. Nothing sounded like this. No, the, I mean, the whole package is great. And again, masters of their craft. Mm. They know how to develop a song. It starts off in one way and then they add elements and fade them out and bring other things in. It, it's great. The only the only thing I would say is that maybe it could be a little shorter. Maybe. I get where you're coming from. I don't agree because I think like Block Rock and Beats, it has enough going on in it to keep me engaged. But yeah, I, I sort of understand because we're about to go into an absolute epic, you know, yeah. in terms of track length. So yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from, but track length on this isn't a problem for me to be honest but it, it beautifully segs into the next song great isn't it yeah the way the drum part from one transitions into into the next so that next being electro bank which we have discussed before we have discussed before and we'll i'll get to the video in a second it was the third single it was released on the 8th of september 97 it reached number 17 in the uk this is another one that has the sample of Hit or Miss by Odetta and also the vocal part, who is this doing this synthetic type of alpha beta psychedelic funkin' is from the track This That Shit by Keith Murray. See, you don't expect from that line and from the name of that song <laughs> that it's going to be done by a fella Keith called Keith. No. Keith Murray sounds like an accountant for a mid-level uh, local authority. <laughs> He sounds like a character in Joint Account starring <laughs> Hannah Gordon. <laughs> so the vocal intro is from the legendary hip-hop DJ Cool Herc. That was recorded in 96 as he was introducing the band on stage at a gig at New York's Irving Plaza. Okay, so so the video. This is what we have spoken about before. Mm-hmm. Directed by Spike Jones, who we're going to talk about again next week. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it features, and this is what we mentioned, in fact, wasn't it? It, it, it features his then partner and future wife, as well as future ex-wife, because they're no longer together. Indeed. Sophia Coppola, performing a, frankly, astonishingly good uh, <laughs> gymnastics floor routine. Yes. <laughs> Who knew she um, like had developed gymnastic skills after starring in the dreadful uh, third Godfather film? <laughs> True, but anyway, clearly she did. Uh, it's a good video, to be fair. It's brilliant. It's a great video. It's a fucking great tune as well, isn't it? It's a belter. I mean, again, I, t- I feel like I'm I am going to repeat myself a lot over the next two weeks. It builds brilliantly. It gets you anticipating. It's got a mm-hmm. filthy bass line, keeping a high tempo, and yep. a great breakdown as well. Like, all the constituent elements that I want the Chemical Brothers to bring, they bring yep. in spades here. Yeah, so the way when it builds, as I said, with that Cool Herc intro, uh, with the bass coming in, the drums building, and then you just get, all right, check this out, and then bang, you're in. It's, yeah. Again, your heart rate goes back up to 200 beats per minute. You, you know, it's it's gloriously chaotic. 
I, I like I like the way you've described that. And then yeah, you get the breakdown where it slows, and then somehow the bass comes back and it's even bigger. You've got the sound of explosions going off all around you. That sort of wailing, distorted synth part, which just it's just it, it's great to, to end it on a completely different note to the way it starts but just a glorious cacophony oh yeah definitely so just something i want to say about this it doesn't feature on either of their best of albums but i've always loved this track i think it's a really underrated gem of theirs yeah i've, I've never never understood why it didn't make the cut so, I mean, I understand that given their back catalogue, it's hard to get everything on there. But it it does seem it does seem a surprise that it's it's not been included. Certainly, like mm-hmm. on a bonus disc or anything like that. Yep, exactly. Now back to that Manchester gig we went to. They did play it there, and I'm glad it's found its way back into their live performances because, as I say, it's always been one of my favourites of theirs. Yeah, it's it's great. And again, masters of what they do. It segs again brilliantly into the next song. The next song, Piku, not named after a Norwegian penguin, or indeed a shortening of a Pokemon character. <laughs> no, but according to the Chemical Brothers in an interview with Spin from 1997, it's named after the rowboat that Tom and Ed used to ferry supplies when they stay at Tom's parents' summer place off a lagoon in France. <laughs> Working class heroes. <laughs> well, that, and it also makes them sound like the baddies from an Enid Blyton story. Unfortunately, like, I went into a reverie after you said Piku and mentioned a small bird, and I started thinking of the Tato game in the mid-early 90s called New Zealand Story, where you controlled a kiwi bird. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> The bird, the bird, like New no, Zealand no, bird yeah, no, I know, yeah. I know what a kiwi is, but what the fuck are you talking about? A game where you control a kiwi? Yeah, there was like a game that you controlled a kiwi. To what end? I can't remember. Like, <laughs> but it was called the New Zealand Story. It's. <laughs> I think I have now reached peak obscure. I think you're now describing malarial dreams. <laughs> I, right, I am going, going back, back on yeah, Google. I'm going back on Google because I'm determined. Yeah. Okay, so whilst you're Googling that, this contains two samples of songs by Rare Earth, Get Ready and a live version of I Just Want to Celebrate. So I would say this sounds most like anything on Exit Planet Dust. Yeah. I like, as you said, the way that it flows from the previous track. I like, well, I do really like the sort of glitchiness of the robotic rhythm. <laughs> However, this is related to something we spoke about a couple of weeks for your dad and his Queen cassette. <laughs> I, I have to admit, when I bought the album and heard this track, I thought the CD was fucked and it kept skipping. <laughs> so I, I, t- I took it back and swapped it for another one. And it was only when that one was doing exactly the same thing I realised. <laughs> and that was just the song. <laughs> yeah, so this one you've got video game sound effects. You've got something coming in towards the end which sounds almost like monastic chanting. Uh, and you've even got some absolutely boss 80s drum fills. The only thing I would I would say about it is that I think it's really well done. I think it's that it works with the overall sound and feeling of the album, but it washes over me a little bit 
given what's come before. Let's call it a step down seems a bit harsh, but it's certainly... Well, it's a, it's a pace change. Yeah, it's a pace change. And it, I enjoy it, but there's better stuff on the album. Okay. I, I'm not going to argue with that. I really like it. I, so I've actually noted that, you know, we're four tracks in now, and over 20 minutes in terms of album length so far. And for me, it's flown by. To, well, if they kept going at the pace of Electrobank and, and of Dig Your Own Hole, then you'd be having a fucking coronary, to be honest with you. So I think it was a necessary <laughs> pace change. Just to get some water. Well, exactly. Particularly with what's to come as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, which I guess we should probably move on to now. Okay, let's do it. All right, so we then move on to track five, Setting Sun. The first single released on the 30th of September 1996. It reached number one in the UK, number 80 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US, and number 13 on the, come on, Eurochart Hot 100. Excellent stuff. (laughs) So, yes, obviously, vocals are from Noel Gallagher. The melody and most of the lyrics are actually taken from an early Oasis demo track called Coming On Strong. Um, Has someone been listening to Tomorrow Never Knows? (laughs) Well, I have an interesting little anecdote on that. So, yes, the drum rhythm pays, let's say a not-so-subtle homage mm-hmm. to, as I have described it accurately, the greatest piece of recorded music in history, Tomorrow Never Knows. And when the single was released, lawyers for the then three surviving members of the Beatles wrote to Virgin Records complaining that it was an unauthorised sample of Tomorrow Never Knows. And Virgin actually hired a recorded music expert to analyse the two tracks and prove that they hadn't actually sampled Tomorrow Never Knows. No, he he was just deeply influenced by it. <laughs> okay, you got, you, you've used the Pharrell defence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean... What a tune. It's a it's an absolute belter. And it was as like we talked about earlier, it was a game changer. It was a crossover hit. And those huge drums, that massive bass as well, you know, it's brilliant. It's perfect. And it had a great video as well. It did, yeah, it did have a really good it was it was a mad video, wasn't it? Like the woman with a sort of evil doppelganger at a rave. And it that was the sort of first time in one of their videos, and you very much get to see this in their live shows now, that you realised these guys know how to fuck with the minds of their audience. Mm-hmm. The strength the strength of imagery that they develop with their songs, like that, it's kind of the inception of it here. Absolutely. Anyone that's seen The Chemicals live will know they are going to send some people's evenings in a very, very dark direction. Clown's going to get me. Clown's going to get me. (laughs) So, yeah, it's no surprise that it did so well. As I said, coming off the back of Life is Sweet. And who better to use on your crossover track than one of the main parts of what was then the biggest band in the world? You know, Oasis have just come off Nebworth. You've also got a hugely receptive public in terms of electronic dance music at this time because of the success of Born Slippy Mm -hmm. earlier in '96. So it was really opportunistic, and I do not mean that as a criticism in any way. It's 
really cleverly planned, really cleverly targeted, really cleverly marketed. No surprise that it did so well. As you say, there's several streams coming together at one time, which is why this this works perfectly. So you've got the rise of the Ibiza holiday, the gradual rise of the superstar DJ. That's starting to be a thing now. Hold that thought for next week, but yes. You've got the biggest bands in the world collaborating with the, with this band, so it gives it an extra cachet and brings interest from other fields. And it's an absolute fucking belter, as you said. And it's a belter, and it's released in, in the summer. Yeah. So, you know, it's a perfect confluence of circumstances that come together to... Nice phrase. Yeah, to, to set them up. So, yeah, like, you've got, aside from Noel Gallagher, you've got that riff which starts it off and goes all the way through is great. Drums are just, like, punch you through the fucking chest. Mm-hmm. Massive drums. Bass, similarly, absolutely huge. It's practically the fucking brown note. Do you know what I mean? That's how big a bass is. It, 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 it's like a hyperactive acid trip, you know? Toddler eating an E number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just eating an E. <laughs> I've used this word before. But it definitely applies here. It's a fucking juggernaut of a track, this. Yeah, it is. Couple of things. Well, a couple of quotes on the writing and recording of the song. Firstly, from Noel Gallagher himself. He said in his uh, inimitable way, I went up to them at Glastonbury about doing a song together because I'm fucking God's gift to music at the minute. And they thoroughly agreed. (laughs) They sent me a cassette and I took it in and put it on the stereo and turned it up really loud. And just that noise came out for about six minutes. I thought our kid had sent it in as a joke just to fucking piss me off. There didn't seem to be any tune to it. Then I subsequently found out they'd sent it, and I woke up the next day, got my head round it, and wrote some words, and then went into the studio. I mean, you literally just recycle one-year-old songs, Noel, but you know, whatever. (laughs) I think it's one of the best things I've ever done, agreed. I was really proud when I played to my mates when we got us to send some advanced copies. They're just mega. They're as good as it gets. Fair play. For once, Noel Gallagher actually saying something uh, relevant and true. Still managing to polish his own ego through the whole thing, but, you know, (laughs) you kind of expect that. Quite. Uh, And then Ed Simons. He said, he came up to the two of us, said he liked the album, and he said, you've given Tim a go, can I have a go on the next one? We just walked off laughing, thinking, yeah, that'd be funny, Noel Gallagher on our next album. But then we're working on this track and it just seemed that it would happen if we sent it to him. Someone we knew knew him and said it was really up for doing something with us. We thought we'd give it a go. We sent him a tape. That was the first time someone who we didn't know came into the studio and he was brilliant. I love Setting Sun. I love the words he wrote. It was quite hard for him to write. Again, it wasn't. He nicked one of his old songs. <laughs> as he says, he just got what to him sounded like one long mess, but he deciphered it. It's a really good lyric. Psychedelic. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it does. It's a perfect crossover between dance, indie, and psychedelia. It works great. All right, okay. Ah, I say all right, okay. It's a great track. I fucking love it. However, is it slightly out of place on this album? Oh, I don't know if it's out of place on the album. Maybe it's maybe it's in the wrong place on the album. Coming between PQ and It Doesn't Matter, it just seems a bit too much of a monolith for at least where it is mm-hmm. on the album. I actually 
Well, no, I don't think because I did actually part of my research. I did. I, li- I listened to the album start to finish without listening to Setting Sun on one of my listens through. And there's a really good flow to the rest of to the mm-hmm. whole album if you take Setting Sun out. I love the track. It's fucking brilliant. It's, as I said, it was the thing, if I ever needed convincing, that convinced me that, yes, I'm going to go and get this album when it comes out. I just wonder if it's a bit too big and a bit too bombastic for the album. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's just a little niggle I have. No, I get your point that where it's, where it's sat on the album, it, I mean, it's difficult because obviously, as you said, like when we were talking about PQ, you do need to kind of calm it down a little bit because you are going to kill um, your listener. But <laughs> maybe if you swap them two round, then it might flow a little better. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe. I, because just... you've, you've brought you brought people down, and you bring them up, and then then it doesn't matter. Like they don't work as a flow. No, exactly. Whereas we've complemented certainly dig your own hole, Electrobank and Piku on the way they all flow into each mm-hmm. other. As I said, it's not a criticism of the track. It's just it, it's an interesting thought experiment to go. You know, could it could the album have, have survived if you like without that track? Um, I mean, it wouldn't have been as successful, obviously. But anyway, yeah. I mean, it still it still would have been successful because it had block rock and beats on it. Yeah, time. yeah. I oh, know that's true. I, I I feel strange, sort of being a little bit critical about a track which we've both said is fantastic and is mm-hmm. obviously one of their signature tunes. And as I say, I'm not trying to do the track itself down. It's just it's the difference between having great singles and and having a brilliantly crafted album, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Shall we go on to it? Doesn't matter. Yes. Let's do it. All right, so this was originally released as Electronic Battle Weapon Number 1, a promotional disc sent out to DJs to test out in clubs on the 1st of June 1996. So this is something they've subsequently done with one or two tracks off off every album they've released. Is yeah, it's, It's like promotional discs, basically, to say, stick this out in clubs see how people respond to it, get the feedback, tweak it a little bit, and then then stick it on the album. Mm-hmm. It features a vocal sample of the track It Comes On Anyhow by Lothar and the Hand People. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's another one which samples George Harrison's No Time or Space with some of those weird electronic warblings. What do you think of It Doesn't Matter? So I, I really like it. I think the way it has a very simple opening with the repeated sample lulls you into a false sense of security. And then Mm. it absolutely twats you over the head with a huge bass, which draws you right into the song. I mean, it's like being hit in the face with a massive wet fish. (laughs) Then it comes back like with a great huge build. And like when listening to it, I could in my mind's eye sort of imagine a club absolutely going off to it when the bass comes back in. Yeah, I agree. But I, I've never been entirely sure what I think of this. Yes, the rhythm's great. It's pulsating. And yeah, those electronic squeals do give you that, sort of pet you on edge a little bit, if you, if you know what I mean. Firstly, I think, coming back to the point we are just talking about on setting some, this would follow on much better from Piku, and maybe that's affecting my judgment of mm-hmm. this track slightly. I also think they've done better tracks in this vein since. I'm thinking of something like Under the Influence on Surrender. I love that tune. Yeah, I I, I don't dislike it. I, it's just, it's overshadowed by setting some. That's all I can say. Okay, I mean, that's, that's fair. 
But yeah, I, I I don't dislike it, and I agree with everything you said about the rhythm and the way it builds, the way it drops and comes. It, it's it has those classic Chemical Brothers elements to it, and. If you've ever seen one of their DJ sets as opposed to their live performances themselves, it's, it, these are very much the types of tunes they play in those DJ sets too. Yeah, it is. Okay, should we move on? I've got nothing to say about it. No, I, th- I think um, I think we should move on. All right, okay, Don't Stop the Rock, Kev. I'm, I'm not about to. <laughs> okay, Don't Stop the Rock was originally released as Electronic Battle Weapon number 2, again on the 1st of June 1996. It contains a drum sample of the Rhythm Makers Monterey, and it's also another one that samples that Zulu Beats radio show with the vocal sample Get Up On It Like This. This is one, well, so it follows on really well from It Doesn't Matter, I think. They, they flow really nicely into, into each other. The rhythm, I think, on this one sounds a little bit Daft Punk, actually, in the way it bombs along. There are some all-time classic electronic Chemical Brothers noises on this. You know, the, <laughs> the synth noises in that breakdown, like, this is the sort of music that should be played in that weird Matrix S&M club instead of fucking White Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and harking back again to Exit Planet Dust, there's some really nice scratching and breakbeats towards the end. It definitely feels more akin to something off Exit Planet Dust than anything else on the album, I would say. Well, it's, uh, so I said that about um, Piku, but I can I can understand what you mean. It, it, there's a definite Chemical Beats vibe to certainly to the ending of, of this track. It's a much it's a much harder kind of dance track, if you like. I really like it. I've got to say, I really fucking like this track a lot. I do like it. The I could do with a little less of it. Okay. Because, and maybe that's because, well, because I like it, it doesn't matter, and I really like the next song. And maybe maybe I'm just wanting to get to the fireworks factory quicker. Okay, interesting. So I prefer this to it doesn't matter. I prefer it a lot to it doesn't matter, actually. I, I've always really liked this. And it's, the, it's, a, it's that breakdown and the weird electronic noises which sound really space age and it's it's what i love about the chemicals it's the it's the it's the weird sort of dystopian discordant noises that come in throughout all of their tracks you know it's um yeah i like it a lot okay uh so we should go on to the next track which is get up on it like this uh, obviously it has that same vocal sample from the zulu beats radio show that i mentioned it was originally released on the Loops of Fury EP in March 96. Uh, that reached number 13 in the UK. And the sort of Lalo Schifrin style brass motifs throughout it are sampled from the track Money Runner by John Schroeder from his 1972 album Gangster Movie Vibrations. And I mean, like, I, I love the work of Lalo Schifrin, so that's why I really like this track, because... It's boss, in it? It's, it's great. Like, it's yeah. such a filthy brass sound. It, it's it's yeah. perfect. It's great. I lo- yeah, absolutely love it. It also samples one of the most sampled tunes of all time, Bongolia, by the incredible Bongo Band. And again, anytime you put bongos on a track, goodbye me. Yeah. Also, I made a note, not sure on the RSPCA's stance on the Chemical Brothers sampling a cat being uh, brought through a mangle. (laughs) It does not sound happy, that cat, does it? (laughs) So what I really like about this run of three is that they each give you something different. It doesn't matter. Whilst I don't love it, 
it's got a really driving rhythm, which, like you said, really fits being at a club night. And you've got Don't Stop the Rock, which harks back to what they were doing on Exit Planet Dust. Then you've got this, which brings in some of that sort of retro 70s B-movie type mm. aesthetic to it. So they each bring something different, but they all fit together as a piece, I would say. And that is yeah, definitely. really, really cleverly done. Yeah, like you say, it's like three separate movements. And the way they seg into each other as well works great and all. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's the shortest track on the album by some distance, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Only two minutes, 47 seconds. I have written, I'd be happy with a little more, and I would. Uh, So what I instead did was I went to listen to the six-minute version, which is on Loops of Fury, because it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As a serious point, I I can see why they put this on Loops of Fury, because I do think it provides a nice bridge between the two albums. Okay. All right. Shall we go on to the next track? Yeah, let's do. Lost in the K hole. Kev, do you know what the title refers to? Is it Lost in the Crusty Hole? Crusty <laughs> <laughs> Burger. Doesn't sound very appetizing. No. <laughs> uh, no, the title of the track refers to partaking in horse tranquilizers. Indeed, it does. Okay. So. The sampled lyrics come from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The full passage reads, It's not endless space, nor infinite thought, nor nothingness, neither ideas, nor non-ideas. The direct sample that that passage comes from is taken from the track Electric Buddha by The Unfolding. I want to mention this because the album that is taken from is entitled How to Blow Your Mind and Have a Freakout Party. <laughs> I want to hear that album. <laughs> I mean, all I'm going to say, it's exactly what you would expect to hear from an album released in 1967 featuring a track called Electric Buddha and being called How to Blow Your Mind and Have a Freakout Party. So were you with me in town when... Uh, a monk came up to us. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, though, don't yeah. you? Guranga. Well, he came up to me and offered me an album of monk chants to heavy metal. And <laughs> to my utter um, disgust that I didn't purchase it because, well, I, at the time, I didn't really want it. <laughs> but I've always been intrigued as to what that would sound like. I mean, surely it's just taking the concept of what Enigma created in the early 90s to its logical next step. <laughs> What's a metal? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I never saw Enigma reaching the metal stage. <laughs> uh, what do you think of Lost in the K-Hole? So, it's got a great bass opening. Brilliant. Funky as fuck. I do, I do like the song. The only thing is that... It, doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Oh, I disagree. It goes along and I enjoy it, but it's never been one that grabbed me, I have to say. I've always liked it. So I I don't fully agree that it doesn't go anywhere because I think you've got those dreamy synth loops that come in and end up taking you out of the track. Not, you know, not mm-hmm. lead, leading you out of the track to, to the end of it is what I mean. What I really like about this is it is a much needed pace change. 
yeah the the next what i will agree with that that both this song and the next song are exactly what's needed to just bring it down exactly it this one it just lets you take a minute's respite to ready yourself for what's what's to come i really like it i agree the rhythm's great the bass line's phenomenal and yeah those synth loops i i I like them very dreamy very Mm -hmm. um, relaxing to me I think this has got more than a little whiff of Moon Safari about it, actually. Okay, I can I can see that. Okay, we are racing towards the end. So shall we go on to where do I begin? Gorgeous. It is gorgeous, isn't it? So this has guest vocals from Beth Orton, who also sung Alive Alone on Exit Planet Dust. The lyrics, I didn't realise this until researching for this clash. She didn't write the lyrics. Tom Rowlands wrote the lyrics to this. Is that right? Yeah. I, I always assumed it was her. As had I, because I think the lyrics are just, well, I've said gorgeously confessional. Mm-hmm. You know, Sunday morning I'm waking up, can't even focus on a coffee cup, don't even know whose bed I'm in, where do I start, where do I begin? Yeah, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, this, I love it. It is like the whole song is brilliantly done. It's a beautiful change of tempo. She's Beth Orton sounds great on it, and it's it, it's something that I've always appreciated on various Chemical Brothers albums are mm-hmm. these tunes. So something like Dream yeah. On, you know, there's there's lo- there's loads of them, and mm-hmm. they they're just pieces of absolute beauty in amongst the chaos. They are. I never like that one that the Magic Numbers sing though on push the button no but like there is the one with uh, the fellow from midlake at the end yeah that's true that's a good song yeah i love beth orton's voice i i've never understood why she was never more popular than than she was mm-hmm. she's a lot more talented in terms of her songwriting and her singing voice than someone like fucking dido who, who had her 15 minutes. And okay, one of her tunes is used in an Eminem song. So, you know, that's, that's where that came from. But do you know what I mean? It's Beth Orton. She was really good live as well. Saw her a couple of times at festivals. Always really enjoyed her sets. Lovely voice. Really good songwriter. And never really understood why she wasn't bigger. She, I suppose she just never found her audience, really. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm going to undercut um, the lovely things that we've said about Beth Orton and this song to query why the song is ending with a circular saw. Was it recorded in a DT department? <laughs> so I haven't... Just, I don't think it sounds like a circular saw. This is this is one where the hive mind doesn't come together. So I'm just going to read you the final passage of my notes. When this song has finished soothing your Sunday morning hangover, it then beats you around the head and tells you to wake up. More massive drums, more huge bass, and then what can only be described as the electronic recreation of some dickhead ragging his 125cc motorbike round the estate on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Fuck off, dickhead. I didn't get home until 4am. So to me, it's it's a similar thing, except the dickhead next door has decided he's doing some fucking DIY. He's got the circular <laughs> sword out and he's cutting wood to build some shitty uh, gazebo thing. But it's brilliant, though. It's mad. Yeah, it, it, it's a nuts way to end the song, but it blends it beautifully into the opening bars of the final song. Oh, it does. Uh, well, shall we go on to the final song? What a tune. Fucking right, what a tune. The Private Psychedelic Reel. So, a couple of 
facts about it. It was released as a limited edition numbered single on the 1st of December 1997. Because it was a numbered single, it wasn't eligible for uh, a chart appearance, so it didn't appear on the charts. I own number 537 of that limited edition run. Ooh. Uh, indeed. Uh, the B-side, as you know, because you used to nick it off me all the time, is a fucking belting live version of Setting Sun. Indeed it is. The clarinet part and what the sleeve notes describe as the dub tetix wave uh, were played by Jonathan Donoghue of Mercurav, who also sung on Dream On on Surrender, as you just mentioned. It contains, during the breakdown, about five, six minute mark, it contains a sample of Andrew Weatherall's remix of James's 1990 hit Come Home. A great song and a great remix, by the way. Mm-hmm. And the title of the track is taken from the name of a Japanese bootleg of unreleased Beatles psychedelic tracks from the Revolver era. Ed Simon described it as tracks they recorded specifically for themselves to take acid to. That is definitely an album that you want to hear because I bet it's fucking wild. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's as wild as How to Blow Your Mind and Have a Freak Out Party, though. <laughs> I mean, after watching Get Back and seeing their their working <laughs> working methods, I mean, Christ knows what was what was going on. Very true, yeah. Okay, so do you mind if I just wax a little about this for a couple of minutes, and then you can do the same? Yeah, that's fine. Right. So I have consistently, including on today's pod, described Tomorrow Never Knows as the single greatest piece of music in in history because it is. Uh, here we have the second best piece of music in the history of recorded music. It is a glorious homage to the best. You've got the opening bars, as you said, which just quietly follow on from the end of Where Do I Begin. Then that main riff just comes in, and this, talk about building your anticipation, talk about making the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end, just getting you to fever pitch, the way it builds and builds and builds you know, and then, like, the drums come in and you're fucking all better off. You just absolutely go wild. Get to about five minutes to say you think you're absolutely spent, so they just break it all down again and, and, and just, just build it up, build it up, build it up. And then at the end, it is, again, a cacophony of, of screeching and whooshing and chaotic sounds. It just fucking leaves you lying in a heap on the floor in a pool of your own sweat and probably your own spinal fluid as well. it's gloriously psychedelic i think one of the beauties of this track is you can if you want to if you're in the right frame of mind just lose yourself in it or you can absolutely go off your tits to it as well it's fucking magnificent sorry i uh i'm really spoiling what we're about to say i just said it's the second best piece of music in recorded history uh so yeah you know what i'm going to say in a bit i fucking adore this you know i do and i know you do so I wouldn't necessarily say it's the second best piece, but we're not going to get into that argument. Because you'd be wrong. This is a fucking belter. It's got a brilliant build, start as as you say, and that once that riff comes in and it's insistent and it's 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 hooked you and it's pull it's pulling you in, and then you get the massive drums with a fucking colossal sound. I mean, yeah. it's it's massive. Mm. This is the tune from Lendon this album off you is what really cemented it for me because I was fucking blown away when I heard this. 
And it's always a highlight of any of their sets when they play this. It doesn't matter how many times I hear it. It's still as exciting as just energizing and, and you know, I can't, I'm struggling to find the words for it. But... So I have, I've, I've noted it's there on the resurrection. Yeah, it is. It's, it's that same level of excitement whenever they play it. Like you said, it's a, it's life affirming this tune. It's, Whenever I hear it, it's just a pleasure. And as you say, you can take what you want from it. If you want to, if you want to be off your tits to it and absolutely go for it, it's got that element to it. If you want to lose yourself in a kind of psychedelic trance, then you've got all those elements to it because it's got that kind of, towards the end, a sort of Moroccan, North African motif going on yep. with like Formula One cars going past. And, yeah. You know, like, there's all kinds of different things going on. It's an, it's an instrumental track that is one of the most exciting pieces of music I've ever heard. And yeah. it, it is utterly brilliant. I cannot say anything more to that. You have put it perfectly. And I suggest with that, we go on to reviews. Bet it's going to be a huge um, shock for the audience. What our, our best song of the album is going to be? <laughs> oh, I surprise you. Oh well. Oh, okay, okay. So it, this album was universally praised upon its release. Rolling Stones, David Frick, about whom we've—I think we've read a couple of his reviews in the past. Yeah, and we've said nice things about him. We have. He said. The list of ingredients read like some techno nerds record collection run amok, but the whole thing roars like the mass turntables of the apocalypse. A high-stepping bass and dropkick beats the sound like a speed and ecstasy spin on Sly and the Family Stone's wicked 69 jam sex machine. The reverb and percussion voodoo of reggae dub wizard Lee Perry, a death throw synth that howls like Jimi Hendrix's strat in feedback purgatory, drum beats that crack like Terminator X doing a buddy rich at the decks, a call to party, back with another of those block rocking beats. And that's just the opening track on this album. You can dance to it until your limbs turn to tapioca, great line, or just sit, listen and have your mind blown inside out. Either way, block rocking beats will fry you alive. And along with the rest of Dig Your Own Hole, it burns the whole rock versus techno argument into a fine white ash. The private psychedelic reel sounds more like Phil Spector conducting the Steve Reich Ensemble. Another great line. <laughs> but it's music for dancing. Like everything else on Dig Your Own Hole, put it up, turn it up, and let yourself be moved. Not bad, that. Not bad. It was long, but I wanted to read it. Yeah. Okay, so in spin, Charles Aaron, whilst approaching admittedly near Chris Scow levels of verbosity, he said, Dig Your Own Hole is a straight-up, last night a DJ saved my life reaffirmation, as well as a gleeful cop-out. Amel-sniffing Brit-beat junkies of the chemicals want to shake your foundation as much as the next DJ saviour, but after that you're on your own. Their digitally dense breakbeat workouts offer a funk-at-your-own-risk proposition, and their millennial philosophy is of the 2000 party-over-oops-out-of-time variety. As a result, there's no electronic corollary to Smells Like Teen Spirit here. All the brothers want, God forbid, is to create a better place for just one night by cramming together all their favourite records. No more, no less. As a result, their sound is a wildly democratic ram jam. Funk basslines thumbed and plucked beyond recognition, guitar riffs crudely disenfranchised, and drums, 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 until you believe in the revolution of, well, drums. 
Killing Joke gets cold crushed with Bomb Squad, Magic Mike Booty Calls the Beatles. It's a clattering, brazen update of Cold Cut's 1989 album What's That Noise, which somehow found room at the same table for Queen Latifah and Marky Smith. <sighs> I mean, I think he likes it. Yeah. Uh, those are just excerpts. It's a fucking long review. <laughs> and I've got no idea what the Marky Smith and Queen Latifah shouts are for. <laughs> Right, okay, I'm going to... Just a couple more. Uh, John Mulvey in The Enemy, he wrote, The world of Dig Your Own Hole, that is bruised, pissed, moody, stubborn, phenomenally cocksure, a trashing of all dance music's spiritual, pacifying potential, a record designed not to calm savage beasts, but to make them even madder. It's fabulous, actually. The chemicals conjure up a grimy, urban, and unavoidably violent night world as the speedy, sliding title track whizzes by, a bit like Firestarter, but meaner, less camp. It evokes cars crashing, buildings collapsing, faces melting. Edge of the seat stuff, if you're still sitting down. <sighs> I need breath here. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> These are some verbose reviews. They are. So I just want to read one retrospective review, which you have already read part of. It is the 2011 retrospective by Stephen Thomas Irwin on all music. He said, Bigger, bolder and more adventurous than Exit Planet Dust, Dig Your Own Hole opens with the slamming cacophony of block-rocking beats, where hip-hop meets hardcore techno, complete with a schooly D sample and an elastic bass riff. Everything is going on at once in block-rocking beats, and it sets the pace for the rest of the record, where songs and styles blur into a continuous kaleidoscope of sound. The chemical brothers might not push forward into self-consciously arty territories like some of their electronic peers, but they have more style and focus, constructing a blindingly innovative and relentlessly propulsive album that's an exhilarating listen one that sounds positively new but utterly inviting at the same time he's not bad at his job is he he's not bad at his job should we go on to someone who is bad at their job (sighs) let's do it let's get it out the way I mean, it's actually probably the shortest passage of any that I'm going to read, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> old Nobby. Okay, Robert Criscal, he said, Their secret isn't techno-wizardry, formal daring, or Lord help us, eclecticism. As with so many pop wunderkins, it's spirit-generous, jubilant, unfazed by industrial doom, in love with energy and sound. Noel Gallagher only wishes he had their heart. They say more with a borrowed catchphrase, who is this doing this synthetized for alpha beta psychedelic funkin', than he can with a whole album of verse, chorus, verse. Of course it matters that they're not retro, but it matters even more that their futurism is neither exclusionary nor puritanical. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> don't actually know what he... What, is it good? Is it bad? I don't get it. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that he's just... he He's certainly having a pop at Noel Gallagher, which... I mean, we, we can get on board with that, to be fair. Yeah, you know, like, for once, Chris Gow might have said something that potentially can agree with. <laughs> I'm saying yeah, potentially it's... because, I'd, like, I'm still going to have to put it through the uh, translator. No, I'm sorry, but your Babelfish would just fucking die of a fucking aneurysm if he's trying to translate <laughs> what Chris Gow's saying to you. Uh, go and read his track, his guys to the galaxy. It's funny. Legacy? Yeah, I think so. All right, okay. They didn't do much after this, did they? <laughs> no, pretty much disappeared into obscurity, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, no, so obviously you know who the Chemical Brothers are. This is the album that turned them from a popular underground act into festival headliners who were known the world over, really. 
So in 99, they released their follow-up album and best album, in my opinion, Surrender. That, again, featured collaborations with Jonathan Donoghue and Noel Gallagher, in addition to uh, collaborations with Bobby Gillespie and Bernard Sumner. In 2000, they became the first electronic act to headline the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. And in 2001, for the first time, they played Coachella in the States. They have played it several times since. They've continued releasing albums. Most recently, uh, in 2019, they released No Geography. I really like it. Their most recent release uh, was something that I featured on Can't Get You Out of My Head and is included on our playlist, The Darkness You Fear, Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, April of last year. They are still going strong. To the headline Creamfields last year, they are very much the elder statesmen of electronic music. And uh, in terms of the band themselves, I just want to read this from Tom Rowlands in the Iron newspaper as to as to their their durability. The truthful answer is that we're still friends. We still enjoy doing this. We only want to go on tour and we have new music to play. And we love the idea of playing something like Chemical Beats, which we made in 1994, right up against something we've just made. One of the real excitements for us is to blend together ideas that we had a long time ago with things we're trying to do right now. And I love the way that all the music we make somehow feels connected. Brilliantly put. Perfect. And it's something that you and I have said before, that whenever we go and see them, the newer stuff really does stand up well alongside the older stuff. Yeah, I mean, I said it several times whilst we were discussing the album, that, you know, they're masters of the craft. They are brilliant live. They know how to fuck with their audience. They've got an amazing visual presentation. So if you want to see, if you want to understand a bit more about that experience, there's the... A live album from the Fuji Rocks Festival and yeah, don't think, don't think, and the film as well. Check that out because it encapsulates the beautiful chaos of a of a Chemical Brothers set. Brilliantly put, nice. Yeah, agree with that. So, in terms of its wider legacy, this is another one of those albums which help take electronic music, dance music, whatever you want to call it, mainstream. As we said, given what had come before, given the fact that they had Noel Gallagher on board and it was re- released to a receptive public, it was rooted enough in rock and funk that exactly what you said at the start, that it meant that the guitar-obsessed indie boys could get on board and could dance to it. How many other acts can you name whose music gets played at exclusive club nights, at rock clubs and indie discos, and even on commercial radio stations, and like you said, on the fucking waltzers in the bowling alley. I would argue that the Chemical Brothers, perhaps more than any other act in the modern era, well, modern, you're talking nearly 30 years ago, but you know what I mean, transcend any and all boundaries of popular music. They are accessible to everyone, and that is their genius. They broke out of the dance music ghetto to become pop music. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I just want to leave the last word to Tom Brayen, who wrote an article back in 2017 for the 20th anniversary of the album on Stereo Gum. In that, he said, Dig Your Own Hole remains the Chemical Brothers' masterpiece, and they'd released it at the exact right time, the moment when this new dance music seemed poised to take over the world. Perfect. Yeah, exactly that. Okay, best song, worst song then? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go on. Okay, so worst song. 
It's a hard one, this. There isn't really a bad song on it. I'm probably going to come down maybe on Lost in the K-Hole just because I did say that it it could be a little shorter for my liking, but it's still really good. Best song. (laughs) It's a private psychedelic reel. It's fucking amazing. And there's some absolute belters on here that aren't even going to get a look in because they're not it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so best song, yeah. I'm not going to disagree, obviously. And I can't really say much beyond what has already been said. It's a masterwork. Just bask in its glory. If there is a better 962 seconds of music in existence, then I haven't heard it. Simple as that. My worst song? I do think there is an argument for Setting Sun. Purely because of what I said about it. I do think it's somewhat out of place on the album. I, I do. I mean, I'm not picking Setting Sun because the track itself is fucking magnificent and I'm not that perverse. So, okay. There's an argument for it, but I'm immediately going to disagree with that argument. Okay. I'm probably going to say it doesn't matter. Yes, I'm. my judgment there is clouded because it follows on from Setting Sun and that feeds into the point I was just making. But it's just not as strong as the other tracks on this album. As you said with Lost in the Care Hole, it's not that I don't like it. It just doesn't do as much for me as everything else does. Yeah, that's fair. I think we are done, Kev. I think we are. So just remind the boys and girls what you're going to be taking us through next week. So next week I will be taking us through You've Come a Long Way Baby by Fatboy Slim. All right, okay. And tell the good ladies and gentlemen how they may keep across what we are doing. So I'm led to believe that Twitter can be used to reach out to people, to make new connections, that kind of thing. So if you're potentially a member of the royal family, then you could see if anyone on Twitter was working in Pizza Express in Woking that night. I think they'd I think they'd remember if a royal came in, you know. It's probably a big thing. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> so you could use Twitter for that, or you could use Twitter to check out our stuff at Clash Album. If you're a fan of carefully curated quality content, then you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can send us an email to albumclash at gmail.com. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, for once, I'm not going to get drawn into a conversation about your Twitter piece then. Let's <laughs> just skirt over that one. It's a platform where people can come together. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for coming together with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, as I always say, subscribe, you know, share it, get involved, tell us what you want us to go through, tell us what you think of of these two albums we're getting some good engagement particularly on insta now which is which is great to see yeah thank you very much for listening we will be back next week as ever until then as always i have been tim and i'm the artist formerly known as cat <laughs> we'll see you next week take care ta-ra. Ta-ra.